morning, everybody. It is great to be with you. We are in the book of Ruth, so it is uh, refreshing and a joy to jump into another series, um, going through a book of the Bible, which is our normal staple. We'll be here for the next six or so weeks. Um, and so Ruth is in the Old Testament uh, towards the beginning. If you are new uh, to church or new to the Bible, um, if you have an app, uh, we encourage you to use that if that would help you. We try to put the text on the screen behind us um, at times to help you as well, but there's nothing that will replace you diving into God's Word, doing the hard work of trying to find it, um, because that shapes you and it helps you get into God's Word. So we're in the book of Ruth today, uh, and we'll just look at verses 1 to 5 uh, today as we dive into the book of Ruth and the overall uh, theme that we will be going after for these next six weeks, we believe, is presented through the book of Ruth, and that is the idea of from tragedy to beauty. So, I want to read these verses, I want to pray, and we'll go at it. Word of God in the book of Ruth says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Father, in these moments... We ask that your beauty would be seen and adored and treasured. We ask that you would be high and lifted up. There is no greater gift for mothers or for humanity on this day than that Christ would be exalted. And that by your amazing mercy, he might get bigger in our hearts and in our understanding, in our affections. They might increase and swell because we see you a little clearer than we did when we came. So, Father, we ask for your steadfast love to be poured out in this moment that we might love you and see you. Change us, we pray that we might not only gather to treasure Christ together, but then by your Spirit we would go out to live sent and make disciples. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The subtitle of this book uh, we have called uh, From Tragedy to Beauty. I remember preaching a sermon a while back at a Colonial Baptist at an, at an adoption conference. And as I was preaching, the title of the sermon was this. It was Adoption, Tragic Beauty. When you hear these two words, you don't think of them together. You think of something beautiful or you think of something tragic. You don't think of this idea coming together. And yet I think adoption is truly that. It is tragic beauty. Tragic? Why? These children should not have stories of abandonment or neglect or abuse or disability or disease that leaves them without parents or home. That's tragic. And yet in this tragedy, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to take tragedy and to be an instrument in God's hands to see beauty come out of it. An opportunity to bring beauty that communicates a different story of inclusion and family and restoration and renewal and hope 
Adoption is tragic beauty. I remember when we adopted our first child, a little girl named Mercy. Uh, Her name that was given to us was Bethlehem. And that was given to us by a police officer who found her in uh, in a district where children were regularly um, abandoned. And we knew that when we got the phone call and they said, we have a little girl that we want to place with you. Her name is Bethlehem. We knew that God was at work because we didn't even know much about adoption until for two years we were in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it was there when we lived with a family that had recently adopted and we began to live in a church family that was a culture of adoption and our our eyes were open and we began to see. So it was at Bethlehem Baptist Church where our heart for adoption happened and then we were told our little girl's name was Bethlehem. We knew God was at work. But it was four weeks later, or no, it was two weeks later we got a call that said your little girl who at three months old was about five pounds, your little girl has tuberculosis. And they said to us, do you still want her? And we knew that was God's child for us. And we said, yes. But when a three-month-old has tuberculosis, that's tragic. There's no other word for it. When she comes home and we give her 190 days of treatment for her TB and Then we continue on in life. At age three, she's diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. It's a muscle degenerative disease. And at that point, you hear that, and there's no other word than tragic, that she would be sick and that she would be struggling to walk. That was tragic. But then when we find out that the leading doctor in her disease of juvenile dermatomyositis is found at Duke. And when we go to Duke and we find out that they say to us, your daughter would have died were she not here in the States. All of a sudden, tragedy turns to beauty. When God is a part of the equation, beauty is always a possibility in the midst of tragedy. Beauty as we define it is not always a certainty. But beauty as God defines it. When He is the hero. When He is treasured and adored. When He shows off His greatness and His glory in the midst of your pain. Out of tragedy comes beauty. And when our God looked at this world and saw not a picture of health, but a picture of tragedy. A picture of a people who had abandoned him. He knew was so debased in heart. They would crucify his only son. His perfect son. He did not step away from it. But he entered into it. He sent his only son to die. And he died a sinner's death. He was ridiculed like a sinner would be ridiculed. That's tragic. But at the cross. The cross itself represented a mysterious beauty where sin would be crushed. The penalty would be paid. Justice would be exacted. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. So that when we look at the greatest tragedy in the universe, that is the death of the perfect Son of God, we can say there is beauty there. Jesus was raised from the dead. Death was defeated. The sting was removed. Eternity is granted by simple faith alone. Satan will be defeated. He has been and will be. It's beautiful. And so when the prophet Isaiah was speaking about this idea that Jesus would come as a suffering servant in the midst of tragedy to begin a process of bringing beauty, he speaks of it in Isaiah 61. When Jesus describes his ministry standing in the temple, he speaks of Isaiah 61. And here's where we get this theme that I believe is the theme of the book of Ruth. Listen to Isaiah 61. You can read it behind me as I read it aloud. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The me there is the suffering servant, that is Jesus himself. Has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, in order that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be, it says glorified in some versions, literally reads that his beauty may be displayed. Jesus comes. To be a light in the midst of darkness, to come near the brokenhearted, to draw alongside the mourning and the faint of heart, that they might have joy that comes in the morning. Sorrow may last for a night, the psalmist says, but joy comes in the morning. And the Savior draws near and he gives the the headdress of gladness and he comes alongside and he says, in order that my beauty might be displayed, I will draw near in tragedy. This is the story of Ruth. In the midst of tragedy, there comes a beautiful Savior. And so I pray on this day, yes, on this Mother's Day, that Jesus would be treasured and He would be adored. So as we look, I'm just going to take this subtitle today and I'm just going to flesh it out through these first five verses. From Tragedy to Beauty. And so in this idea, what we begin to see at the beginning of the book of Ruth is this idea of tragedy. And it begins with the tragic rejection of God. The tragic rejection of God. Now, when you look at these first five verses, you're basically just jumping into a story. It's hard for you to understand exactly what is happening here, but... If you start in verse 5, here's where you land. You have a woman who has lost her husband and her two children, her two sons, and is left with two widowed daughter-in-laws. And if you have that story, I think it's appropriate to call that tragic. But that's not the greatest tragedy in Ruth. Hit the rewind button. It says that when the two sons, dad had died, they took up Moabite wives. We're going to talk in a little bit that that was a tragic decision. That they should not have done. But that's not the greatest tragedy. When you hit the rewind button just a little bit more, what you find is there was a, look at verse 1, a famine in the land. And they ended up leaving that land to go to Moab. We will see that too was a tragic decision. But that's not the worst decision. That's not the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy is found in the first six words. In the days when the judges, and then add seven, ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. Why does he begin this story here? It's not just to give us a setting, but to communicate a message. The setting is when the judges ruled. And that is, if you read the book of Judges, a tragic, tragic part of Israel's history. Because if you know one refrain in the book of Judges, it is this. Judges chapter 21 verse 25. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Over and over. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in our world, that sounds like that's pretty okay. 
You might think that's not so tragic. This is saying this was a rejection of God by a people and they did what was right to their own eyes and their own affections. This was a statement of rejecting God as king and seeking their own self-salvation project. That is the greatest tragedy in the universe. Jeremiah says it's like hewing out broken cisterns that can hold no water. And as you hew out your own way, your own path, your own direction, it leads to tragedy. In the last few chapters of the book of Judges, I was talking to a friend of mine who was actually preaching through the book of Judges in a church in D.C. And he and I were talking this week, and those last few chapters in the book of Judges could be, other than the crucifixion of Jesus himself, could be the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. To read them, I read them I've read them for the past several weeks, but to read them again this week, I literally was hurting in my stomach. And the book of Judges ends with that refrain. Why is all of this tragedy happening? Why is all of this abuse and neglect happening? You need to understand. It is a picture of men who are abusing women and treating them as property. It is a disturbing picture of self-rule and disregard for human life. It is a horrible picture of marriage where concubines are brought in and polygamy is embraced. Anytime in the scriptures, make a note of this, take it to the bank, when concubines are brought in or when polygamy happens, this is not God's plan. It is always a doing things in their own eyes. It's an aberration to how God has created male and female, one man, one woman married for life. And so, whenever you hear prostitution, abuse, polygamy, you should think they are doing what is right in their own eyes. This is not God's plan. Because what's difficult is when you read the Old Testament, it doesn't always just immediately follow a tragic story with condemnation of that story. And you could read it at times with sometimes a sense of, is God okay with this? But this is why the Old Testament is tricky. You can't just pick out a verse and just kind of hone in on it, or really a couple chapters and just kind of hone in on it. You've got to understand it in the light of the whole. What has led us to this point is Genesis through Deuteronomy. You've got the first part of the Bible that you've got to couch all of this in. God is not okay with what is happening in Judges. Why in the world would God preserve such horrible stories in the Scriptures? And honestly, I am trying with all my might to not go into detail right now because I knew we would have multiple ages in here. So I feel a little handcuffed with the word tragedy. Vomit-inducing, vile, I don't think there are enough words in the English language to describe what is taking place. Two weeks ago in Montgomery, Alabama, there was a new memorial opened. It was a memorial that, as both a Christian and an American, I believe to be of utmost importance. The memorial is described on its website as the nation's first memorial dedicated to the legacy of enslaved black people, people terrorized by lynching. African Americans humiliated by racial segregation and Jim Crow and the people of color burdened with contemporary presumptions and guilt and police violence, end quote. This memorial includes a memorial square with 806-foot rectangular monuments that descend from the ceiling 
meant to symbolize the more than 4,400 lynchings of African American people between 1877 and 1950. You may be surprised at the name of the memorial. The memorial's name is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Why in the world would you name a memorial that reflects on the 4,400 lynchings of African American individuals? Ones that we know of. Why would you name it a memorial for peace and justice? The director, um, Brian Stevenson, answers the question well. He says this, Our nation's history of racial injustice casts a shadow across the American landscape. This shadow cannot be lifted until we shine the light of truth on the destructive violence that shaped our nation, traumatized people of color, and compromised our commitment to the rule of law and to equal justice. In other words, this memorial bears the name for peace and justice because it rightly understands that similar to the Holocaust Museum in D.C., you cannot have peace and justice without properly remembering the truth of injustices of times past. Why do I bring this up here? God preserves tragic, horrific stories in the Scriptures to be like a neon sign to its readers that this is the path. This is the consequence when God's people reject Him and do what is right in their own eyes. We need to be brought face to face at times with our horrific sins in order that peace and justice might be pursued and not just assumed. The book of Judges stands as this memorial, the memorial of tragedy, so that the people of God would not repeat it. And now you run into the book of Ruth. You run into the book of Ruth that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So when you have an entire people who have rejected God and have led to all kinds of horrible sins, and you land now in this context, you get the story of the book of Ruth, you not only see a tragic rejection of God, but that leads to tragic decisions. Tragic decisions. Because, there's some biblical evidence to this that I won't go into, but the famine in the land, it is no accident that there was famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was known as the house of bread. And yet, ironically, there was a famine. Why was this? It was because the people of God were doing what was right in their own eyes. There's connections in the Scriptures that this famine came as a direct judgment upon the people of God. And so... What did Elimelech do with his family when they were experiencing the famine? Did he trust God? Did he repent of his sins and trust God to provide for him? No. He continued to reject God and he went to the land of Moab. This is not a benign decision. I was reading a commentary by a man named Ian Duguid. Not a very common name, but... It was very helpful. And he was stating that this decision to go to Moab was not like a decision, should I move to New Orleans or should I move to Goldsboro or should I move to Knoxville, Tennessee? Should I move to New York? It's not that kind of decision. The people of Moab began, they were created, look at Genesis 19, through an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. That's the people of Moab. Those are their beginnings. And throughout the Old Testament, you begin to see evidence after evidence that the people of Moab were characterized as running after everything but God. Their king Balak was found in the book of Numbers for hiring a prophet named Balaam in order to curse the people of Israel. They were known all throughout 
the books of uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as those who were running after false gods. These were the people of Moab, characterized by intense immorality. This was not just, should I go to this city or not? This was a choosing to run away from God's provision and trust Him in hard times. And so when there was a famine in the land, they ran to Moab. And so I think it's helpful to just ask ourselves, just to stop. To ask ourselves, who are we following? And when tragedy hits, and it has hit for many of you, will you seek your own self-salvation project? Or will you shudder? Shudder at the obvious consequences of leading your own life, solving it yourself, seeking to save yourself by doing what is wise in your own eyes. Will you repent and follow Jesus? Or will you just seek to walk in your own way? Where are you right now? When it comes to decision making, there's... (laughs) There's almost very few other questions that um, I get as a pastor. What do you think we should do? You know, should we get married? Should we go to this college? What degree should we pursue? Should we plant a church here? Should I go here? Should we have more children? Should I choose this job or this promotion? This is life. This is disciple making. I hope this begins to be a grid for you. Decision making is disciple making. Because I say, if I said it once, anybody who's asked me for input, I've said it a thousand times. God cares as much about the journey as he does your end decision. And so the framework that I use regularly in decision making are two words. Worship and wisdom. And you will never have wisdom if you are not worshiping. How do you make decisions? You fall on your face and you call out to the living God and you ask Him to shape you by His Word. And then you humbly ask the people of God to speak into your life. And then you surrender everything saying, God, whenever, however, and whatever, I am yours. That's a quote from Tim Keller in a wonderful sermon on decision-making called God's Plans, Your Plans. Whenever, whatever, however, I surrender to you. This is worship. And then as you are near to Him, Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? It means that as you get nearer to God, He shapes your heart. He makes you more like Jesus so that your desires align with His. You will be wise. Elimelech was not wise. He did not take the opportunity of tragedy to repent in order that he might begin to see beauty. Instead, he questioned God and he ran further from God when he had little. How will you receive and act when tragedy hits you? It will happen. It is happening for some. It has happened for many. Tragedy is meant to be an opportunity out of which the flower of faith and the beauty of God grows. But we must fight with all of our might to understand that our great God is for us and He is working. He's even sovereign over our choices. We are fully responsible. He is fully sovereign There is no tension there. And so we make decisions in confidence, seeking His will described in His Word and seeking wisdom as we walk with Him. Elimelech did not do that. So not only did we have the tragic rejection of God, we had tragic decisions and you also have tragic circumstances. 
the tragic circumstances are Naomi lost her husband and then she lost her sons. And that's devastating. You have two women who lost their husbands. And I don't know if you see it in here, but look in here. Verse 4. Her two sons, before they died, obviously, they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Ten years. And what you learn later on, they had no children. Barrenness. Not only were they suffering from the loss of a husband, those women were suffering from having no children. Infertility. Which in that culture especially carried with it shame. And it carried with it almost necessary poverty. So the themes that begin to be brought up that, you'll, that we will begin to investigate, uncover, and research as we go on is what is the significance of Ruth being a Moabite and her nationality and ethnicity? That has a massive significance. But also Ruth is found at the end of verse 5 to be in poverty. We begin to see a little bit about what God does in the midst of the tragedy of her poverty. But friends, I just want to hold out for you right here that for some of you in tragic circumstances, I just want to say, not only in the Scriptures, but experientially, I have seen some of the darkest times in a couple's marriage be the catalyst for mutual repentance, forgiveness that had never been granted before, and a cultivation of friendship that resulted in an imperfect yet thriving marriage built upon a common journey with God. Dark tragedy can result in shocking beauty. And I pray that by reading this book, you begin to see how the flower of faithfulness and the beauty of God's love for you can actually come out of some of the tragedy that you are experiencing. Some things happening to you, but other things because you have made poor choices. And yes, we have to live with the consequences of our choices. But many times in God's beautiful sovereign plan, we are changed. And beauty can spring forth. I've also seen some of the darkest time for individuals walking alongside sick family members, sick children, the death of loved ones, and yes, that forever shapes somebody, but I have seen it forever shape them to look to Christ more for comfort and wisdom and guidance. I've seen genuine faith spring forth. I've seen, although it came through massive doubting and inexplicable pain, I've seen God produce flowers of faith. The ability to share all of your heart with God and not just stuff it all in. Sometimes it takes intense suffering before you just get to the end of yourself and you cry out and you say, God, all of me, take it all. I'm a wreck. When your undoneness begins to be before God, there is a freedom there. Experiencing His power and His comfort and His hope that unsurpassed at a depth that you never imagined was possible and you watch the people of God show you God's love in ways that you never thought could be that close. With eyes to see it, tragedy is an opportunity for beautiful redemption. So, Ruth is a picture of tragedy, yes. But it's from tragedy to beauty. From tragedy to beauty. What is the beauty in the book of Ruth? I want to argue, you could also say, what is the beauty in the Bible? Beauty begins with God. There is no one more beautiful. And there is no reversal of a circumstance that will ever be more attractive, more compelling, more satisfying than a right view of God. 
we must be careful in our tragedy that we don't make the relief of pain greater than the glory of God. From tragedy to beauty is the story of Ruth. And the beauty is God. The bridge between tragedy and beauty begins with Jesus. And we see later on, we'll get there in depth next week, but we see later on in verse 16 that when Ruth is faced with her mother-in-law telling her to go, back to, uh, to go back to her people while Naomi says, I'm going to go to Bethlehem. I've heard that the famine is not there anymore. Ruth says, no way, no how. I'm not going to leave you. And she says this about her allegiances. Ruth said in verse 16 of chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, Naomi, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. She is declaring a different trajectory for her life. And she is saying, I'm going to go after God. God will be my treasure. He will be my delight. And I will go after him with you, Naomi, not alone. He is beauty to us. Our God is the one who satisfies in the midst of pain. He is the hero of the book of Ruth. He's the hero of our lives. And I was reading a book by a man named Richard Sibbs called The Bruised Reed. And I felt like some of the turns of phrase that he used to describe our beautiful Savior were like water to the soul. So I've got a little bit of an extended quote. It'll be behind me. But I want you to think, this is Jesus for you. This is Jesus for you. In your tragedy, the beauty is Jesus. How do you go from tragedy to beauty? Is how we go from the cross to the resurrection. It is the glory of God. I want you to hear, this is Jesus for you. He says this, Physicians, though they put their patients to much pain, will not destroy nature. Their aim is not to destroy but raise it up by degrees. Surgeons will lance and cut, but the aim is not to dismember. A mother who has a sick and self-willed child will not therefore cast it away. Shall we think there is more mercy in ourselves than in God who plants the affection of mercy in us? No way. You get the analogy? If physicians do it, surgeons do it, and moms do it, who gave it to them? God. If He's the... Creator and the Father of mercies, think of Him as merciful towards you. The quote keeps going. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy burdened. In Matthew 11. And look in Matthew 9 how His heart did yearn when He saw the people as sheep having no shepherd. That was our passage last week. He never turned any back again that came to Him. He never turned any back that came to Him again, though some went away themselves. He shed tears for those that shed His blood. That's a beautiful image. And now He makes intercession in heaven for weak Christians, standing between them and God's anger. He is a meek king. He will admit mourners into His presence, a king of poor and afflicted persons, as He has beams of majesty, so He has a heart of mercy and compassion. He is the Prince of Peace. And why was He tempted? But that He might relieve those that are tempted. He loves you. He's for you. He is the beauty. And so here's the last little bit. He is a physician, good at all, time, all diseases, especially at the binding up of a broken heart. He died that He might heal our souls with a plaster of His own blood, and by that death, save us. That's who He is. 
And so you go through any tragedy in life, you are never alone. The cross screams, you will never have to be alone. And I'm pouring out all my mercy, all my intercession, all my patience, all my love upon you. I am fighting for you. He's the beauty in the midst of tragedy. He's the hero of the book of Luke, or book of Ruth and Luke too, but you can tell we were there for a few days. But out of a heart that sees the beauty of Jesus, there is a heart of obedience. And there is beauty in obedience. And that's a secondary beauty that we see in the book of Ruth. Many times, and this we've got to be careful, many times when you read about characters in the Old Testament, you can make it about moral lessons first. And that is, if they do good, you do good like them. Be like David, be like Ruth, that's the story. Well, there's not everything is always to be commended about the people who were following God. You know, every hero always had its wart. That's why you needed Jesus. So you have to be careful there. The book is meant to point to God. He's the hero. He's the one that you want to be near and be like. But here there is something that is meant to be emulated about Ruth. And here's why. In the Hebrew Bible... The book of Ruth does not follow Judges. It follows Proverbs. And why is that? Because there's only two places in the Hebrew Bible that talk about a woman of noble character. Can anyone guess the two places? Proverbs 31, when the Scriptures say this, 31 verse 10, a wife of noble character who can find? And then you don't ever read it in any other place except the book of Ruth. When it is said of her in Ruth 3.11, a woman of noble character. This is a suture. Ruth is meant to be an example of the Proverbs 31 woman. And so as we read through this, there is much to commend about the life of Ruth, about the choices she makes, about the restraint she has. And as you look at Proverbs 31, we have to be careful because Proverbs 31's task is not to describe tasks a woman should be doing throughout all generations. Proverbs 31 is a description of who the woman is to be throughout all generations. It's a description of the heart. It's a description of the character. It's a description of the essence of a woman. I just took some words to summarize this. Women. Proverbs 31 says, this is who you are to be. Faithful. Hardworking, not idle. When married, you should honor your husband and work with your husband as provider. You're to be a team player, not a self-server. Proverbs 31 goes on to say you should be trustworthy, wise with your money, generous with a keen eye towards the poor, self-controlled with your mouth, but also using your mouth to speak wisdom and to teach kindness. If you have children, women... You're a unique gift to those children of nurture and tenderness that honestly, it's rarely seen in men. <laughs> Overall, women, you are to be characterized by strength. Strength that comes from the strong conviction that ends Proverbs 31, which is this. Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. As we heard from Callan giving a testimony about his mom, as I could say, ripple effects all over this church. When I hear about the women of TCC, many times the cream that rises to the top is how you women are going hard after God. And I just want to commend to you that is what Ruth, 
by the end is known for and characterized by. That is what we should be fighting for, what you women should make as the hallmark of your life, that I want to fear the Lord. Being accepted by people, charm, is deceitful. Because the same people who will approve of you the next day, they might not. And beauty is vain. It will come and it will go. And then it will maybe never come back, you might feel. That's not my assessment. That's your assessment of yourself. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. When I say this list, some of you women, you feel really competent. You feel really confident. You're encouraged. Yes, I'm going after that. But some of you women, you feel crushed. You feel inadequate. You're more well aware of your failures than you are of who God is for you. And I want you to remember, the key to your obedience is the beauty of Jesus. He is not asking you to be perfect. He is asking you to lean on His perfection, the power of His Holy Spirit within you, and go hard after this picture. And as you go after this picture, women, when you fail, it's okay to admit it. Be humble. Admit it. But be dependent and watch God work great things in your life. I want to encourage you, women, that at this church, we want this church to be a culture that is safe and that is equipping and that is honoring and treasuring of women. Yes, of Jesus first, but we want women to feel loved and empowered and honored. And in our understanding of the Scriptures, we hold a position called complementarianism. And that's a really big word. I get it. It means that men and women are complements to each other. It speaks to this truth that men and women are equal in essence and in value and in gifting and in worth and vision and dreams and ideas. And all the promises of God are equally for us. And yet, there are distinctions between men and women, not just biologically, but in roles in the home and in the church. When the Bible says, wives, submit to your husband, that is not something that has faded away with our culture. It is something that is rooted in creation. It is not a bad word. It is beautiful. But that kind of submission in the home and then submission in the context of the local church does not mean that it is submission to all men everywhere. There are distinct contexts. Women submit. And it is not submit to all men everywhere, but uniquely to husbands and to the pastors. What's interesting is in the Scriptures, everybody should be submitting. And it's not a bad word. I would argue if you are not submitting to someone, you are in a very dangerous place. And I'm actually not just speaking about to God. Even in our eldership, we are submitting to one another. And there is a sense that many men struggle to understand healthy leadership because they have never been submissive themselves. Healthy male leadership is not insulted, but welcomes differing opinions and invites correction and is known for gentleness. Healthy male leadership is Men and women are a team. They are not threatened. 
But sadly, in our culture, many times what has happened when some churches have held a complementarity position, they have so fought over here, they have neglected to honor women and to create pipelines and pathways for their gifts to be used. And halfway through our church, there was a season when we had a lot of people coming here from actually Southeastern Seminary. We had an unusual number of people. And so I created something to try to help these guys understand what it looks like to be pastors. At Treasuring Christ Church, women can do anything that men can do except for be pastors built upon what is called in the Scriptures in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. Because the pastors are meant to carry the authority through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. But women can do everything else. But somehow as we begin to focus in on raising up these men to be pastors and helping them understand these gifts, it began to be that we weren't creating pipelines and understanding for women over here. We have so far to go and so much to grow in. But we shifted where equip our disciple-making ministry shifted from just focusing in on pastoral training to men and women, couples and singles, all being able to come together so that we could train one another, we could grow together, not just men being trained, but women being trained. We fight hard to make sure that women are sharing testimonies and that they're doing announcements, as we saw this morning, that they are deacons in our church as well as men. But all of this is built upon biblical underpinnings that women are not objects to be looked at. They are people to be treasured. And I just pray, I just pray that we would understand. We would understand many times it is hard. And I've talked with many women when they were in tears about how at times they have felt dismissed by men. That their opinions were not valuable unless they had a certain title. And then even then they had to be able to say something that was proved to be worth its salt before they would pay them any attention. And I've seen this happen in homes where men are not valuing the opinions of their wives. Treasuring them and loving them. Seeking their input. Oh may God, raise up women who are Proverbs 31, going after fearing the Lord with all of their might. But may we, as men, fight hard to, yes, stand strong and firm in biblical complementarity, but that is not an antithesis to honoring, equipping, empowering, and treasuring women. And friends, This movement, this latest movement of women's rights has so much to be commended. It does. Demand for equal pay, refusing for women to be objects, demands to be seen as valuable for their minds and their hearts, not just their bodies. It's insistence that women be protected against abuse and have equal justice and equal access. These are wonderful, but I think there are two overcorrections. Two overcorrections, and I think it's oppressive to women. One is the overcorrection that women can make it without men. Hear me. I don't think men can make it without women. I think, amen, thank you, we need to be talking in this room. Last I saw, when God said, I will create humanity in my image. He makes them male and female. There is an intricate, necessary connection between men and women to reflect the glory of God. Women need men. Men need women. And any message that says, no, I can make it on my own. I don't need anyone. Is once again, I will do what is right in my own eyes. It is a self-salvation project. And may the book of Judges lead us to shudder. We need one another. We are a team in reflecting the image of God. But the second overcorrection that I think our women need to hear is that it has swung. It is a reaction against, 
oh, women can't vote, the women's suffrage movement of the early 1900s, women can't vote, women are just meant to be barefoot and pregnant, that's all they can do, yeah. So now the swing the other direction is, the only value you can have women is outside the home as a CEO. That is not the picture of the scriptures. Your value is intrinsic in that you are a child of the living God imprinted with his image. That's what makes you valuable. And so you need not crave to be a CEO for your worth. Or you need not over-idolize being the stay-at-home mom as your worth. Over here now we have the responsibility as husband and wife to raise up the next generation to follow Jesus. And to the degree that the career makes you say, this is lesser to care for my children, you have idolized your career. And to the degree that you're over here, the stay-at-home mom caring for your children, and you look down upon these women who are out in the career workforce, you have idolized this over here. This is a responsibility. But how that looks, we need to have a lot of grace. Our identity is that husband and wife, men and women, are meant to provide, protect, as a team, raise up the next generation to be disciples. And it is a wonderful thing that many of you women have chosen many of your different paths that you have chosen. But hear this, Proverbs 31, fear the Lord. Don't make your own path. Walk in community so that you don't walk to the tragedy of the neglecting of God and in tragic decisions instead you'll walk with your eyes towards the beauty of Jesus and you will walk in beautiful obedience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray. I pray that we learn. I pray that we embrace. I pray that we would never neglect our responsibility to disciple our children. I pray that we would not fall prey to the message that women's worth is only in their degrees or in their paycheck or in a outside of the home career father there are so many passages in the scripture that hold up the beauty of those women who have chosen to stay at home and those men who have sacrificed for that to happen so that children can be loved and nurtured into christ i've walked alongside of so many others where finances become a necessity and I just pray that they don't walk around in self-condemnation today. But I pray that they have a keen eye on what it means to not just be engaged in a career, but primarily to be engaged in what it means to raise up those children to follow Jesus. As we celebrate moms today, I pray that motherhood in and of itself would not even be an identity. I pray that being a child of the King is the greatest identity that our people could have. Father, please create a culture here at Treasuring Christ Church where women are honored and equipped and their gifts flourish. Opinions are valued. But I pray that we also foster in this church healthy male leadership servant-hearted, initiative-taking. Father, please, wherever there is a temptation in my speaking or in our hearing towards error, I pray right now by your Holy Spirit you would safeguard it. For whenever we talk about sensitive things like this that require wisdom and balance, it inevitably will result in hearing things wrongly. And so, Father, I pray for protection. I pray for unity. That our biblical positions are held to and embraced. And as we walk, not in the wisdom of our own eyes, but alongside you, following you, obeying you, I pray, Father, that you would create healthy homes, healthy hearts, a healthy church, healthy church planting. I pray that repentance would characterize these moments that we have. If men have been neglectful of their wives, 
abusive in their tone, not gentle in their demeanor, not fostering input and conversation and decision making by their wives. I pray, Father, for the gift of repentance in this moment. Where women have not seen themselves as valuable and loved and cherished, I pray that they would look to the cross and see their value. Where they have fallen into overcorrection as if they don't need men, I pray, Father, that we would all repent of our need for each other. And Father, I pray that we all together would be about making disciples, seeing the next generation love you. And so in these moments come, we're going to take up the Lord's Supper. There's two tables in the front, one in the back. When you are ready, you can come and get the bread and the cup. You can stay up front and pray. You can go back to your seat. Whatever is stirring in your heart, use this time to worship the Lord. Ask him to work in your heart. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take of the meal. The Bible says you would be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. But take this time to call out to him, to repent of your sin, and to ask Jesus to change you from the inside out. In these moments, I pray, oh God, work. Let's take the Lord's Supper together.